bet they're really getting confidence now. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another week and another episode of Cuddy and the Cooge and another guest. As promised in 2022, we uh going to bring some more guests on. And today we got we got a good one, a very uh, well-established career and goes way back with the Cuddy over here. How you doing, Cuddy? All good, Cooge. All good. Everything's good. Welcome, everybody, back. Here we go. First episode of 2022. And it's uh, always good to bring on a good friend, an old friend, uh, way back in the day that we go back. And uh, and as you mentioned, he did have a, a really great career, uh, been a lot of different places, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but want to welcome Steve Condon to the show. Steve, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to join Cuddy and the Cuge. <laughs> well, I'm honored to honored to be with you. Look, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I gotta say, you're uh my cousin back in Vegas. He's a big Eagles fan, so he'd be happy with the the sweatshirt you're wearing. Oh, there. good. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm first in line when it comes to getting free gear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Condo, we um I I, I think and I, I was trying to as I was preparing for this show, we met when you were at Iowa, right? Like back, cause I was at Iowa state from 80 to 82, which kind of telling our age now. Right. And I, I think that's when we first met. Was it, was it not? Right. I was, a, we must've met in 81, 82 because I started at, at Iowa in August of 81. And I was there until the end of September of 85. So we didn't overlap for very long, but I'm, I think that's where we first met. You're right. Yeah. And then, then we kind of, met again and hooked up at some national trainers conventions and had right. a few adult beverages at those things and absolutely <laughs> and got to be pretty good friends. But I, you know, and we'll talk more about your career, but you know, one of the things that, you know, that we, we try to bring out in, in our podcast, we talk about sports, we talk about athletic training, but really we talk about people's careers and the things that, thing that sticks out to me about your career is, man, you've touched all with the exception of major league baseball and the NHL, you've touched about every job opportunity uh, in high school uh, that an athletic trainer could do. You were, you were at a pair of five schools. You were with the Eagles. You were with the Milwaukee Bucks. You were at Marquette. You were at Iowa state. I mean, you you you've been to a lot of different levels in your career and and now that we're both kind of older and everything and you look back on that what sticks out about cuz you know we don't really think about that as you're going through and changing jobs and all, all the different things but that's that's a pretty good deal like me I was a you know UNLV for all those years Iowa State and I ended up at Albany but man you you had a career that a lot of people really I think would like to have, uh, you know, going to all these different levels. Yeah, it's a bit unusual. And I've been really fortunate that everywhere I've been, I work with great people and you know, a lot of them. 
And I mean, my, my first full-time job was as an assistant trainer at West Point at the United States Military Academy. And the guy who I worked for was a Hall of Fame trainer, uh, Ed Pillings. Yep. And then I got to go, uh, I got to go from there to the University of Iowa, which, you know, I grew up in Iowa City and I grew up an Iowa Hawkeye fan. So that at, at that point in my career, that was my dream job. I was moving back home and worked with an outstanding staff of, of trainers, you know, Ed Crowley and John Streif and, and, and Dan Foster and, and everybody at Faye, Faye Thompson. I mean, it was incredible. And I learned so much. And Dr. Albright uh, taught me a lot. And actually, after two years there, I, I got appointed as a, a director of one of the athletic training facilities there that oversaw uh, track, cross country, golf, baseball, tennis, cheerleaders. But I had, it was more responsibility, uh, but I missed being involved on a day-to-day -day basis with, uh, like I used to be with football. So then my, my opportunity uh, came to get the job at the University of Arizona as the head basketball trainer. And uh, it turned out to be a, a really good decision for us. And we loved living in Tucson. And it was, uh, our, my girls were four and seven when we moved to Tucson and they were 14 and 17 when we left. So they spent a lot of their developmental years, you know, in Tucson and we're around the basketball program and a lot of, a lot of those, those kids who, who, uh, Jerry, you obviously know a, a lot of them by name, but it was a great time to be there when Arizona basketball was becoming what, uh, you know, people now know it as a top five, top 10 perennially um, basketball program in the country. And it was fun to be involved with that. So and after a 10-year period there, I, I got approached by a, by a close friend uh, who was the student trainer at Iowa when I worked there, Mark Kaufman. And then Mark came down and, and uh, was, uh, was in the grad program at Arizona. And then he went, after leaving Arizona, he went to PT school. And, and after a year of working for one other person, he opened his own sports medicine clinic in downtown Chicago. Uh, which in about a nine-year period of time grew to 95 clinics. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we made the move to go from the University of Arizona and to work for Mark at, at Athletico Sports Medicine and Physical Therapy in the Chicago area. And that was a great experience for me as well because – Obviously, I learned a lot more about rehab because that's what I did every day, you know, working in the clinic. It was a little different in a lot of cases because, you know, we, we grow up in our career in the athletic training world, especially in college, of working with athletes and working, you're working with highly motivated people who want to get better. And sometimes in a, in a, in a clinic situation, that's not the case. Yeah. You know, you work with people that who aren't athletes. They're just, you know, trying to rehab from a, a shoulder problem or, or a hip problem or whatever it might be. And uh, they're not used to putting in the hard work that an athlete takes for granted, you know. So, uh, but I learned a lot during that period of time there. I was there for three and a half years. I don't mean to cut you off, Steve, but I do have a question about that. Sure. Fr from an athletic training perspective, since you, started with the highly motivated athlete that's pushing themselves to get better. 
to this type of clientele, did you ever find that kind of like frustrating in a way? Um, I think initially I did, but I, I realized pretty early during that process that, that, you know, these people aren't, aren't the kind of people that I'm used to working with and that they're not athletes and I can't expect as much from them as I would from somebody who's been training basically their whole life. Mm-hmm. And I learned, I learned to be patient and to listen to them and to try to guide them at maybe a little slower pace at the beginning than the people that I used to work with. And uh, I, I learned a lot through that process. I can imagine taking that, that patience, you know, that, that is a, it's kind of hard to rewire your brain sometimes to be that way when you go from something so high energy to have to learn the patience to be like, all right, these are just normal people trying to rework their shoulder. (laughs) Exactly. You know, especially too, when you're in the business we're in with athletes, most of the time we're trying to slow them down. You know, like exactly, and then you get into that situation, and you're trying to motivate somebody to go a little bit faster. I, I never worked in a sports medicine clinic, but one of my internships uh, at West Virginia as a student was to work in a clinic. John Spiker had a little clinic. He just first started his own little clinic at night, mm-hmm. and so from like seven to ten at night, a couple days a week. I'd rotate through that clinic. And to be honest with you, like in your case, I, but for me, I learned real quick. I'm like, you know, really not the environment I want to be in because I, I just couldn't be that patient. You know, I, 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 uh, it just didn't work for me, you know, and, and it was nothing against those, the patients or the people. It just wasn't something that was of interest to me. So I was, I was glad I learned from that experience that, well, that, that really wasn't the direction I wanted to go. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, I, w- I worked for Mark for three and a half years. And I got a little bit of working with the athletes in that time. When, when, I, when Mark appro- approached me about the job, he said that he had just been approached by a person from the Chicago Rockers, which was a CBA basketball team. Yeah. The old CBA. And he said, why don't you come up and work for me? we'll put you in charge of, of working with the rockers. And then when you're not working with the rockers, you'll work in one of my clinics. So that first year I still was working with, with the highly motivated athletes. These are guys that are one step away from the NBA and that, and I, it was enjoyable. It was fun. And it was kind of what I was used to, but then I was getting introduced to the other part of it, working in the clinic. So, um, and then I also did some stuff when I worked for Mark. I, we, he, Mark's uh, clinics cover do a lot of outreach, and they cover a lot of small colleges. They cover a lot of high schools. So I do have a smidgen of experience working with high school athletes when I was doing that. They cover, they cover all the rugby in Chicago, which is a huge deal in the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. Rugby is a very, very big deal in Chicago. There's several different teams that compete nationally around the country in different leagues and stuff. And then I, I used to cover football for uh, a little school, Concordia University, Division Three, which is, you know, a little bit different than covering uh, yeah. 
a power five conference football team, but that, <laughs> but the kids are, they work hard, we're motivated nonetheless, and it was fun to work with them. So uh, I got a lot of, a lot of different things, but the thing after, after about a three and a half year period, I, I really missed the competitive part of being with a program like I used to be and like you used to be. And then I got, I, and then, and that's when Mark Coberly called me and uh, Frank made the move to, from head trainer to being a, an assistant athletic director and Mark became the head athletic trainer and they needed somebody with basketball experience. So I, that's when I got back into it and uh, went to Iowa State. And uh, I like to brag about uh, I was at Iowa State for two years. They were Big 12 champions both times, and they hadn't <laughs> been a champion of their league since 1945 until that point in, in uh, 2000. And, and they haven't won one since. So it's all because of you. Yeah. <laughs> I was definitely there at the right time. Well, I have, I have two things to say. First, I got to give uh, Coberly a little shout out. As I told you before the show, he uh, put me on to you as a guest because he was gracious enough to give us a tour of the facility at Iowa State when we were out there visiting. They're doing a huge remodel. It's beautiful. Their locker rooms like better than the Dallas Cowboys now. Right. And uh, he's he said, you know, that that you and my dad would have some good stories. So he put me on to you. And my second point is, how did you feel about going from being a Hawkeye to a Cyclone? Yeah, well, I tell people <laughs> that all the time, too. I'm I'm one of the few people that worked at both schools. So I have friends and enemies at both places. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it was it was kind of strange when I worked at Iowa State. The second year I was there, we played our basketball team, which was nationally ranked, played at Iowa City, and it was weird to be on the visitors bench in Carver Hawkeye Arena. It was it was a little bit strange. Yeah. Well, you guys mentioned at the beginning, and I think you know for our listeners maybe be a little confusing because you were saying, yeah, we met when I was at Iowa State. You were at Iowa, but you were at Iowa Hawkeyes and you Cuddy were at Iowa state. So how did you guys meet then? Well, I think just because we played each other and, then and then I, at some of the district meetings, I think I, right. You know, I was going to uh, say, I think, I think we first met at either a, a, a NATA district meeting or at the Iowa meeting. Yeah. If I think I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then we just kind of kept running into each other. And then, uh, yeah. you know, as, as uh, life went on, uh, Jerry was at UNLV and I was at Arizona. We were both really, really good basketball programs and we played several times. And, uh, yeah, we ran, so in uh, we ran in, into each other quite a bit in the, in the NCAA tournaments. We, we right. played each other a lot during that time, the Tarkanian and right. Lute Olson, you know, 10 years, um, those were some really yeah. good rivalries, some big games. So crazy. Yeah, games. I remember the time when we were playing in the tournament, and we were in uh, we were in L.A. The tournament was in Poly Pavilion, and I came by your hotel to visit the night before the second round game, and Tark came in, yeah, and sat down with us. That's <laughs> and he. <laughs> He was that typical Tark, you know, he put his hands behind his head and he just leaned back in the chair. And I, I told him, I said, I'm a little, little worried about this game tomorrow because we play uh, Seton Hall because they, you know, they, they just won the Big East tournament and really were playing well. And they had three pros on their team. And he said, nah, you guys are, 
you guys are going to beat them pretty easily, I think. And, and, and he basically kind of stated the reasons why. And then he said, like, tomorrow we're, we're, we're going to have a tough time because we're, we're playing Iowa. And they run the full court zone press and, and our guards aren't that good. And sure enough, exactly what he said the night before happened in both games. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, the guy was really people don't give him enough credit for 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 being a great coach, you know, because of all the all the stuff that he went through with the NCA and rules and all that stuff. But the, I mean, the guy could flat out coach. Yeah. Did Iowa end up beating UNLV? That year they did, yes, yeah. Yeah, that year they did, and then we we ended up beating Seton Hall by twenty nine. Wow! Yeah, I remember that. And we, the year we beat Iowa, we were in Seattle, and that was the eighty seven year. Right. And we we were down by nineteen at the half, in the Seattle Superdome or whatever it was, and we came storming back in the second half. I think Gerald Patio hit like seven threes in about eight minutes and we got it tied with about four minutes to go. And then we won. And that's that game took us to the, to the, my, the first final four I went to in, in new Orleans. So, right. But uh, right. yeah. Yeah. That was a good Iowa team too. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. They had some really yeah. good players on that team. Yeah. They had, I think three pros on that. I think t- uh, B.J. Armstrong was on that team, and, yeah, they were good. Yeah, they were really good. And, um, I mean, we – you know, at halftime, you know, you go in and you're down by 19, and you're thinking, well, you know, time to sack up the bats. Because <laughs> we just weren't making <laughs> shots. It weren't that we weren't playing bad. We just couldn't make any shots. And, man, Gerald Patio just lit it up in the second half, and that was it. You know, we defended them, and, you know, we got right back into the game. So, uh, so those those were some – you know, battles, you know, when you get, you know, going back to what you said about Tark, I mean, I, I always used to think, you know, like at halftime, some of the adjustments, and of course, you know, he had a good staff around him too, but you know, the adjustments and stuff that he would make, you know, and you'd go out and kind of watch it happen. And the next thing you know, you're right back into the game or you're pulling away, you know what I mean? And, and uh, right. very subtle, but it worked. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, that's that. That was kind of the same way Lute was. You know, people talk about how different, maybe personality-wise, those two were. But Lute was all in a like in a huddle during a timeout and during the halftime in the locker room. It was all business. It was all he's, he wasn't yelling and screaming. He wasn't criticizing people. He was saying, "We need to do this better." We need to stop doing this, and we need we need to make them do this, and and uh, you know it was all business, and uh, it wasn't about yelling or cussing anybody out, and it wasn't panic, and uh, and that you know the team picked up on that, and they 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 played relaxed and they tried to follow directions, and sure enough, nine times out of ten it worked. Yeah. Well, from your run at Iowa State with the the two years being champion. Can you give us like a little bit of some highlights of that and some of like your most memorable moments from that time? Cause I'm sure that was a really great time in your career for you. Well, the, uh, the one, the one memory that stands out was we were playing at, at Kansas and, you know, Kansas had three terrific players on that team that were really good pros too. 
you know, so we go in and win at Kansas and well, it wasn't a normal Kansas. Yeah, well, it was a normal Kansas team. It was a top five Kansas team. And with the, at the timeout under four minute timeout in the game, we were down six. And it was like these kids, we had this point guard named Jamal Tinsley, who, who was really a great player. And he, you know, it was like, he came in the huddle and said, okay, we got him right where we want him. <laughs> and sure enough, we we made every play the last three and a half minutes of the game and won there. I, I mean, the two years that Iowa State, I never lost to Kansas. Wow. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah, there aren't a whole lot of people that can say that. No, no kidding. <laughs> Especially going yeah, down there to point, try we to had, win. We had, we had beaten Kansas five games in a row because right after I got there to Iowa State in March of uh, 99, the last regular season game was at home in Hilton Coliseum against Kansas and they won. And then they won both games in both years that I was there. So they had a five game winning streak against Kansas. I will so, say in college basketball, there's, well, I don't really care about NBA that much. So maybe it's the same, but in college, there's nothing like that. Lat when there's like a last few minutes of like a close like nerve-wracking game it's like the there's nothing like quite like the adrenaline of that yeah well i would agree and i've i've worked in, 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 in jerry as well i've been in a lot of games like that and and uh yeah and i worked a year in the nba and you don't get that feeling like that in, in that league yeah i think that's one of the things that's wrong with that league actually right I kind of feel that way so, about professional sports versus college in general. Like I feel like college sports are just generally more, I don't know, passion or something. So you kind of get that more of that adrenaline feeling. I don't know. Yeah. I think one of the things that, that maybe makes it that way is, I mean, in the NBA, you had 82 games, right? You know, you didn't have, you didn't have 31. You had 82 games, right? And, and and in the NFL, you had 16 games. You didn't have 11 or 12. So I think the games be individually became less important, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that's a part of it. Yeah, and I, you know, when you watch college basketball even today, like it, it's it's such a tough game, especially when these teams get into their conference season. It never down the stretch with like a minute and a half, a minute to go. You know, team could be up by seven or eight points, but those leads are never secure anymore. I mean, you know, you like when I when I watch college basketball now, and and, and you watch the end of a game when it's a really good close game, even when there's twenty seconds to go and the team's down by five, you, you still think they have a chance. You know, and you're sitting yeah. at an arena because you hit a three, you foul, and then you go to the free throw, you know, and, and all of a sudden they win the game. It's crazy. It, it, it's really exciting yeah, the way it works, you know. That's one of the, the things that's really changed the game, and you mentioned it was the three-point shot. You're, ne- you're never really out of a game. No. It, like you said, the game when patio went off. I mean, if the three hadn't been around, you, you probably wouldn't have won. Right, exactly. Yeah. We had Lon Kruger on as a guest, and, uh, I, you know, when he was at UNLV, it was one of the – I mean, I, I don't I don't think anybody would ever see this again, or at least I know I, I never seen a game like that. 
I mean, literally, we were down by 10 points with like 45 seconds to go in the game at San Diego State, which is a good team. And then, right. in, and, and we were still down by seven points with like 14 seconds to go, and we won in overtime. I mean, it, yeah. it was just nuts. And the, the whole place just went totally silent, you know, because the place <laughs> was packed. And to this day, right. I still don't know how in the hell we did that. I mean, it was just the yeah. craziest thing ever, you know. But that's college basketball. It's, it's just a great game, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the truth. I miss those days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Steve, take us on, uh, you know, kind of take us on the rest of your career following Iowa State. Okay. Well, from Iowa State, um, I got an opportunity to go to be the head athletic trainer at Marquette University. And I'll never forget it. I walk in there the first morning and I see that they are having one of those individual workouts, Jerry, that, uh, you know, where they can have four kids practice yeah. for an hour with the coach. And I see these four kids are in their practice. So I take my, my stuff down to the training room and put, put it on the desk. And I come back up and I watch. I figure I'll watch these kids and introduce myself and kind of get a head start on getting to know uh, the people I'm going to be working with. And I had just come from Iowa State where I had Jamal Tinsley and um, uh, what was the big kid's name? I'm blanking it out. Uh, and then I had, you know, I had 13 or 14 pros at Arizona. So I know good players like you. Yeah. And I see these four kids practice and I went, one of these kids is unbelievable. And so I go up to Tom Crean after these kids go downstairs to shower and I go, who is that? He said, oh, his name's Dwayne Wade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was head trainer at Marquette for two years and I had Dwayne Wade on both teams. Wow. And we were, we were pretty good. <laughs> I would and imagine. the really great thing about that was as great a player as Dwayne Wade, well, you're talking about a guy who got a triple double in the NCAA regional final against Kentucky. I mean, that guy could play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, and he was, he was an even better person than he was a player. Yeah. He was a fantastic guy. He was very, he was beloved by like the other athletes and other sports at the school. Uh, he was the kind of guy that if you were a women's volleyball player, player and you were walking down the hall in the athletic area there and your parents were there he would stop and introduce himself and talk to your family and that. i mean he was just a wonderful person to work with that's nice so yeah yeah so i was at marquette for for two years and then i got a chance to become the head athletic trainer for the milwaukee bucks and i had tried for 14 years to get a job in the NBA and I came in second like five or six times and then I finally got a job in the NBA and ironically it happened to be in the city where I already lived which is a <laughs> bit strange so um, uh, it was interesting so that's why I was only at Marquette for two seasons because I got that opportunity so I remember when I first met you that was you know, when we were younger, you talk about, you know, where you want to be in the next five years. And I remember you always said you wanted to be in the NBA. That was your goal. You know? Yeah, I, 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 it just appealed to me. And I had and when I was at Arizona, I had an opportunity to remember. That's when they had one of those like, combine things in Phoenix. 
that was kind of like the pre-draft camp in Chicago, but they had one earlier in Phoenix. And I would go up there and help work that. And then uh, three years in a row, uh, Mark File, who was uh, formerly the head trainer with, uh, with the Milwaukee Bucks, but had been retired, but he was he kind of put me on to some people to talk to. And I would go up and work the pre-draft camp in Chicago. And I just, that's from that point forward, I, that was, a, that was a goal of mine. And the first time I got an opportunity to interview was uh, 1989. I went out and interviewed for the job of the Philadelphia 76ers. They came in second place. And then ironically about uh, the guy that they ended up hiring was there for two days and then said, I, I, I'm not doing this. And he turned around and went back home. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So was, that was kind of strange. But every time that there was an NBA opening, I applied for it and, and I got interviewed five other times and then finally uh i got the got the chance in in milwaukee so yeah it was it was interesting yeah and you worked with uh another one of our guests tim wilson was there with you and tim and exactly I, yeah we went way back to our, our unlv days and uh right um yeah so you both yeah i loved working with tim he was a good person and and, and his wife was uh was a really great person as well and actually on a fairly regular basis sang uh sang the national anthem at yeah. a lot of home games very talented lady I, i'll tell you a story you know we now since i've retired you know we bought an rv and so we've been doing some traveling well last winter we made our way uh across the country and we stopped in lincoln nebraska we have another family friend that lives in lincoln and tim was it was at the time at Nebraska it was their basketball strength coach so we get there and and I told him we were in town and so he he lives he lives south of Lincoln like out on a farm mm -hmm. so we drive out there get there and and uh we start start drinking beers you know and and telling stories and his wife comes home and uh, she's working for like a dog grooming company. She loves dogs. <laughs> so she comes home and I start talking, uh, you know, Tim and I by now had, you know, four or five beers. And so I'm like, say, so I said, Hey, I, I understand you're, you know, you're really good. You're a good singer. And, uh, no, that's not what happened. What happened? Because my, my <laughs> mom was there and she tells a story because they didn't know she sang. They had no clue. So they're all sitting around talking and all of a sudden she just belts something out. And my mom was like, did you just sing that? And she was like, oh yeah, I sing. I, I sang in, you know, all this stuff. And, and so she starts like belting out and singing. My mom's like, she had the most amazing voice. And yeah, she's really talented. Yeah. And she actually had gotten my dad to sing a note or two as well. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was after seven or eight, you know, beers, but, <laughs> but it was crazy because we, we, uh, you know, my wife said, well, can you sing? I, I it's some show and she's sitting on the couch and she goes into this, like starts rowing a boat <laughs> and, and I'm like, what in the heck is she doing? And then it was frozen. I think frozen, something like that. And she starts singing the songs. But what was amazing to me 
is that she knows all these songs. Right. Like, and, and what a beautiful voice. And then after a few more beers, <laughs> she sang this. She sang, made up a song for their wedding. And she sang uh-huh. to Tim during their wedding. Now, they've been married, I think, 15, 16 years. And she sang that song to Tim, you know, when we were there. And she remembered it verbatim. She's pretty talented. Yeah. Uh, we yeah, had a blast. It was a lot of fun with her that night. <laughs> yeah, Tim Tim is just like you and me. He ended up with her. He outkicked his coverage. Like he did. <laughs> <laughs> I know. He did. <laughs> so... So what? So since the NBA was kind of your goal, did it live up to your expectations with all that buildup? You know what? It, it, it lived up to my expectations every second of it, right up until the day that I got fired, <laughs> which was at the end of the first year. Yeah. And they didn't tell me why I got fired. I asked them if there was a problem with the player. No. Was there a problem with the coach? No. Uh, you know, they did. They wouldn't give me a reason. It was. It was really strange. And that's when I. That's uh, the point when I figured out that things on the professional level are completely different. They don't have to give you a reason for anything that they do. Uh, fortunately, uh, I had signed a three-year contract, and so I only worked there for one season. So they they're on the hook to pay me for two more seasons. I'm the only person that I know of that got two raises after I got fired <laughs> because, because it was in my, it was in my contract. <laughs> and I checked every August too, when the thing rolled over and made sure that I got the raise that I was supposed to get. Absolutely. So, but it was, it was kind of strange because I didn't work for like about a year and a half. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't like it. I I missed, you know, I missed it. And I started like two or three days after I got let go by the bucks, I started looking around for jobs, but it was in, it was, it was like the first week of July. So like most universities have already turned over because they're going to start school in another six weeks or whatever. And uh, I was I was in a position where because I was getting paid, I could be kind of choosy and not have to take a job that I didn't really want or mm-hmm. wasn't good enough. So everything worked out good. And then uh, it's during that time I started going out and work, work in training camp for the Philadelphia Eagles. The head trainer for them at the time was a, a guy named Rick Burkholder, who was a classmate of Coberly's. Yeah, right. In the grad program in Arizona. And we became, he was a, a pit undergrad. And we became friends right away when he got there. I think it was the fall of 86. And to make a long story short, he worked for us. We, he was a GA there for two years, and then we hired him on our staff. He actually worked on our staff in Arizona for a year. And then he went back, and he was the assistant football trainer at Pitt. And then after three seasons, he became assistant trainer with the Steelers. And then he became the head trainer for the Philadelphia Eagles in 99. And he told me when he was an assistant with the Steelers, he said, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a head trainer job in the NFL. And when I do, you're going to come out and work my camp. Well, the first camp would have been, um, you know, like in July and August of 99. And I, that's when I had just gotten to Ames. 
and I didn't feel like it was it was the right thing to do to leave <laughs> Coberly in the in the lurch and disappear for six weeks and go work <laughs> training camp. So I I didn't do it. But I starting in in the in July of two thousand, I went out six years in a row and and worked training camp with Rick. And then uh, when I when I got let go by the Bucks, it would have been uh, in July of '04, and uh, in January of 06, the offensive coordinator for Andy Reid with Philly got the head coaching job with the Minnesota Vikings, and he took one of Rick's assistants with him to become the head trainer with the Vikings. And so now Rick is looking for an assistant. I had been out there six years in a row working camp. He went up and talked to Andy Reid. They didn't even interview anybody. They just said, bring him, bring him in. So... That, that's when I went to work for the Eagles. And you were there for like six years, right? That you were right. Yeah. Six seasons. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. You know, I got to work with, with, with a guy that I consider to be one of my best friends every day. And the Eagles organization was a really good one to work for uh, because their owner believes in what they do in the athletic training room. Like Rick would go to the owner and he would say, we need to buy this new machine because it allows us to do this and this and this, and it allows us to take better care of this and that and this. And he wouldn't say buy one. He would say buy two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when it came to taking care of the players, money was no object. He, he did not cut corners about the medical part of things. Um, he didn't try to save money by buying cheaper stuff. And that's not always the case in that league. I know some guys that couldn't buy certain items because they, you know, the owner thought they cost too much, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's, he's got a payroll of whatever, $150 million, <laughs> or, you know, billions of dollars. Yeah. He's trying to save money on band-aids, <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't like that with, uh, with the owner in Philadelphia. That's good. You in um I mean during that time, did you I mean, did you ever want to be a head athlete trainer in the NFL? Uh I the honest answer to that is no. Yeah. You know, it was mainly because of my age. Yeah. I I I knew that it would it would be kind of a long shot. <clears throat> it wasn't that I didn't feel like I could handle it, but some of those guys, I mean, the, the amount of hours that they put in, especially now, it's gotten worse, a lot worse with COVID. I talked recently with, with Rick in, in Kansas City, and he told me for the last two years, 75% of his day is taking care of COVID. Yeah. You know, they, they, have, they have testing three different days during the week. He has to take calls from the league all week long. Um, I, I actually, <clears throat> I work games, um, I worked the Titans games and I worked one yesterday and I ran into a, f- a friend of mine who, uh, who's been a long time assistant with the dolphins. And he, he had, he had the same thing to say. He said, the combine has completely changed. Uh, and it just, it's, it's changed the way they do things. And it's really put a lot of stress on him. And consequently it puts a lot of stress on his staff because they have to pick up a lot of the slack yeah yeah those jobs you know on the outside 
<clears throat> they, you know, seem like they're, you know, that's, that's where you want to be. But boy, when you're in, I mean, college is bad enough, but when you get at that level, like you said, first of all, you, you, you know, you're very expendable. It depends on who likes you, who doesn't like you or what the circumstances are. And you spend a lot of time on task, man, working yeah. uh, a lot of hours, you know? So after a while, uh, that, that can, that wears on you for sure. You know, that, that was my whole thing. I really enjoyed being in the college at the college level. I mean, I, you know, you work a lot of hours there, but, but there was a lot of reward for it. And I never really had, it's just, I was just curious cause I never really had an ambition to go into the NFL or to, you know, try to go into the NBA. Um, and I don't know why at the time, cause it would have been, the thing to do, but I just really and always enjoyed the college game more, I guess. Right. Well, I, I do too, but I, um, I had, a, you know, I had that dream for a while. And then when I got the opportunity, I had to chase it. So, and I'm glad I did, but I agree with you. I love, you know, the environment, the college environment and the, and the, and the kids uh, and how hard they work and, and, and how dedicated they are and how badly they want to win. You know, it's just, different yeah and we got so close i'm sure you were the same way at, at in vegas i mean that that group of kids that we had at arizona they were we were so close to those kids we had those kids over to our house all the time we were at their weddings my girls were at their weddings you know so that was part of their growing up was mm -hmm. was being around you know you ask any kid in, in tucson arizona you know, what would you do if Steve Kerr came over to your house to have dinner? I mean, they, they flipped out. Right. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, they, the girl, our, our, Kelly and Katie didn't think about it that way. They just, Steve Kerr was just a friend of ours, right. you know, and Sean Elliott and all those kind of people that, you know, you know, they, they, they were little girls when they first met him and they, they were just, you know, they were friends of ours. Right. So that was that was fun to kind of watch that part of it you know watch them grow up with those kind of people and they they got treated so well and those kids were so close and those kids are still close that group of kids and i'm sure it was the same with your group there at UNLV they still look for excuses to get together yeah absolutely i mean you know i think uh, you know for me i mean a lot of these you know social media has been really good for that for me I mean, I, I've reconnected with so many former student athletes that, you know, these and what's really nice about it is so many of them have done so many great things in their life, you know, and, and that's what's really rewarding to me is to hear some of their stories. And, you know, now I've got and I'm sure you're the same way. Like I, you know, I got guys that, you know, we've had on our podcast, but even the guys that we haven't, that their kids are now playing in college or they're in the NBA or you know what I mean? Right. Or they're in the NFL. It's kind of crazy. First of all, it tells how old we are. Exactly. <laughs> but it's really kind of cool to see, you know, how they've grown and, and, and some of the things that they've done. You know, it's really neat to, to see that. So, yeah, I agree. So uh, let's let's go on after the Eagles. What happened then? Uh, well, it was, it was kind of a strange uh, ending with the Eagles. 2011, before training camp in 2011, the, the, the players were locked out. 
and they were having one of those labor deals going on. And one of the things that was part of the new collective bargaining agreement that started before the 2011 season was you had you had to have you were required to have a physical therapist on your athletic training staff who was hired by and paid by the team well at the eagles we didn't have that because the eagles had a marketing agreement with novacare which is a big health concern, very big in the East. They have a lot of sports medicine clinics, hospitals, uh, surgery centers, that kind of thing. In fact, the, the Eagles headquarters is called the NovaCare Center. And what they would do is they would provide a physical therapist to the Eagles who for seven or eight months of the year worked strictly for the Eagles. And then in the off season, they would work at, at one of the clinics or whatever. And they were, but they were paid by NovaCare. Yeah. Well, when the collective bargaining agreement changed and they put that rule in, we can't use that advantage anymore. And they got to have a PT on their staff. And I, I was kind of the odd guy out. So I didn't get my contract renewed. That would have been in February. And I, I, started looking for jobs right away and make a long story short, I, I, I ended up getting a job as the head basketball trainer at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. And uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. We were there for three years and they have a very successful program there. They're, Jerry, as you know, they're one of those teams that nobody wants to play. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, we, I mean, we would go in. We we won at Oklahoma. Yeah. No, I when I was at Iowa State, we we and I, in Arizona, we never won at Oklahoma. When I was at Stephen at Boston, <laughs> yeah, you we, we rolled we rolled in there and kicked their butts by one. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, I mean, we 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 took a like a seven and a half hour bus trip over to Memphis and kicked their butt and, and took the check and drove home. Yeah. You know, we and we played pretty good competition. Now last season. Stephen F. Austin won at Duke. That's right. Yeah, they so, did beat Duke. Yeah, that, that, they, they ain't no joke. They got good, very good basketball program there. And it was fun. It was a fun place to work. Uh, it was a fun place to live. So we were. I finished my career there and then, and then uh, retired uh, at the end of July of 2015. Nice. And now you said you live outside of Nashville? Now we live in Gallatin, Tennessee, which is about 25 minutes uh, from downtown Nashville. And my daughter lives kind of between where we live and Nashville. Uh, she lives in a, in a community called Old Hickory. And then my, uh, my other daughter, Kelly, and her husband, Ryan, and two little boys uh, live in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is actually a less than an hour from our house. So we're, we're close and uh, we love living here and I'm doing, I played 173 rounds of golf in the past year. Wow. wow. <laughs> I keep count, Jerry. Keep count every day. Well, uh, we got this new Cuddy and the Cooge tour bus and I would love to go to Nashville. So, you know. Uh, yeah, you'll have to come down. It's a neat place. It's a fun place. It's, it's, as you know, it's become the bachelor and bachelorette capital of the world yeah yeah people don't go to vegas anymore they don't go to new orleans anymore they come to nashville yeah yeah right <laughs> it, it's nuts 
Like I worked in, I worked an event uh, Friday night on, on New Year's Eve. I worked for this security company. I actually worked for two of them. One of them covers the uh, Bridgestone Arena. So I do a lot of uh, uh, Nashville Predators hockey games. I do a lot of concerts. And then I work for a different company that does the Titans games. And uh, we covered this event. It's called New Year's Eve something. There was like 250,000 people. Wow. At this big bicentennial park down, down near downtown. So yeah, it's there's always something going on in Nashville. So that I was going to ask you what you were doing with the Titans, and that's what you do: work security. Yeah, I work for the security company, and basically this year my job has been I'm at the top of the ramp that goes from the visitors' locker room down to the field. So it's nice. been kind of fun because I see you know a lot of like I like I ran into Troy yesterday, who's been a long time assistant with Miami, and if I wasn't standing right there by their locker room, I would have never you know run into him right. anywhere. Uh, you know, I I know half of the people that work for the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Because yeah, half, most of them were with the Eagles when I worked there, and I I still go out and work Chiefs training camp when I can the last two seasons I hadn't gone because of the COVID restrictions. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, I know, you know, guys that I knew when I was in the league and from before when I was in the league. Uh, so plus a lot of players who who are now on different teams and stuff. So I run into them there at that top of the ramp where I work. That's That's nice. That's cool. I thought maybe you were doing one of those, uh, you know, the, the medical guy that the, the, the eyes on the field guy, you know, they have athletic, I don't know what their titles are, but they sit up. Yeah, well, they're a spotter basically for the league for the concussion protocol yeah. mainly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I can't do that because I've worked for an NFL team. Oh, is that right? Oh, okay. Yeah, and one of the rules they have is you cannot do that if you have worked previously for an NFL team. Oh. Yeah. So, do you, you know Charlie Thompson at Princeton? I know who he is, yeah. He used to do some of the games for the Eagles, and then the the NFL made the made that rule stronger because uh, Charlie, on occasion, would come up and work a few days of uh, mini camps. Oh, okay. He he got ruled out of it, and it just it didn't make any sense. Right. Yeah, no, that's I, I know those jobs have been uh, uh, you know pretty neat, you know, for athletic trainers that are either retired or you know, kind of looking for something else to do. And it's just, I mean, they're obviously part-time. You work eight games or whatever. But it'd be kind of cool right. to do that, you know. I think it's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was a good, it was a good idea, too. Yeah, it is a good idea. I mean, there, there's times when you get so busy on a sideline in an NFL game, if somebody might get a headshot or whatever, and you don't you don't see it because you're taking care of somebody else. Yeah. So having that eye in the sky is a real good idea. Yeah. Well, Steve, you're uh... – your stories sure is awesome. I mean, like my dad said at the beginning, you you really have been all over the map. Been all over the literally. Place. I tell everybody I've been one step ahead of the law. <laughs> yeah, hard guy to track down. But we've we've really loved doing it, and uh, my wife Carol obviously deserves a lot of credit because uh, there were several of these jobs when I I would I would leave and go to the new job, and she got left behind to sell a house and take care of the move and you know and then set up a new house when she got there and uh we've i think i think the house that we're in right now is the 12th house that we've owned wow. in our 
in our life. Yeah. So, and I don't know, my girls don't know. Uh, they, they get asked a lot where they, where they grew up. And I think usually they say Tucson because of what I said earlier, they were four and four, uh, four and seven when they got there and 14 and 17 when they left. So, but, so we, we've moved around a lot. The longest I was in any one place was 10 years in Tucson. But all of those experiences have been awesome. All of those experiences, I worked with great people and learned from people at every place. And I consider myself uh, very fortunate to have the kind of career I've had, mainly because of the kind of people that I got to work with. Yeah, now, and, and now isn't it good to be retired? Do you like being retired? Oh. <laughs> I I uh I played golf 173 times last year which is good. And uh and then I do this gig, you know, where I go down and work hockey games and, and concerts. Jerry, the working these concerts is like stealing. <laughs> like I, I I usually work on the floor. Yeah. So I'll escort out like there were, a couple of years ago we had the Eagles two nights in a row. And I escort people to their $1200 seats. Yeah. And then when the lights go off and the music starts. I go sit on on a chair against the wall, and I get paid uh, twelve fifty an hour right. to watch the concert. These, paid tw- these people paid twelve hundred dollars to sit there. <laughs> I get paid twelve dollars an hour to sit there. That's so, the life. That's pretty it, good. It's, it's worked out great because we can, I kind of pick and choose which ones I work and which ones I don't want to work. Yeah, that's. I've cool. gotten to be a hockey fan because I've worked a lot of of the Predators games, and it's fun. It's a fun sport to watch in person. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and, and then uh, working the football games, and it's uh, you know it pays it pays for my golf habit. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's a pretty good habit. Yeah. Well, hopefully, man, yeah. I, I appreciate you taking the time. No kidding, I've enjoyed catching up with you, and uh, hopefully, like Megan said, now that we got the big uh, the big bus, maybe one of these days we'll uh, make our way down to Nashville, and uh, I can at least play one round of golf. You, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I've told this before. I retired. A guy at one of my colleagues at Albany said, "Hey, they got a great deal at this golf course. It was uh, three hundred and fifty bucks. Um, all the golf, unlimited golf, after two o'clock every day. You, you know, you could play as much as you want. Mm-hmm. So I sign up, pay the three hundred and fifty bucks. I go out there the first part of May, which here is still kind of chilly, and I got there by myself and." I buy one of them pool carts, you know. I played nine holes, never went back. <laughs> most, ex- <laughs> most expensive yeah. round of golf I've ever played. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. So, no, uh, you got to play it a little bit to get better at it. I know. Yeah. 173 times is a lot of times. I, I'm getting better, but uh, I, I still have days when I want to throw all my clubs in the pond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, take care, my man. Thank you again very much for joining Cuddy and the Cooge, and always a pleasure to see you. All right, you too, and and thanks for asking me. And uh, I'm sorry that I that I couldn't do it earlier, but uh, I'm really glad we had the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Take, take care, care Steve. Steve. Thanks so much, man. We'll see you soon. All right. All right, another great guest, another great episode. I uh, I for real want to go to Nashville. So now that we have that connection. <laughs> Yeah, Steve's a good guy. And like I said, man, he's been all over the place as far as his career went and uh, had a very successful career. Um, You know, him and I had a lot of great games together when he was in Arizona. And and he's always been a good friend. I mean, anytime I've ever needed to reach out 
to somebody. You could always call Steve and he would give me some advice. So just, uh, good casu- to catch up. just casually worked with Dwayne Wade too. Like, yeah, okay. no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. So, uh, all right, everyone. Guy. Well, uh, great episode. Good start to 2022. Got some momentum going and we'll be back next week with another guest. Absolutely. See you all next week. Have a great one. And we got some good things ahead. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, Wherever you're streaming this podcast, if you would be so kind as to give us a subscribe and maybe even a review. In addition, you can find us for any updates on social media, Facebook or Instagram. Our handle is at Cuddy and the Cooge. Cuddy with a C, Cooge with a K. Or you can email any questions or submit any feedback to Cuddy and the Cooge at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.